We're starting a new series. And this morning, Judges chapter 1. Children, if you're trying to find Judges, it's pretty early in the Bible. You get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. Judges chapter 1. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. So let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was, former, uh, was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksha, his, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you've set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephtath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. 
And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went uh, to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza, so the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Athlab or Akzeb or Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But the house, hand of the house of Joseph rested heavy on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to the land I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Well, welcome to the strange world of Judges. Uh, We're about 1100, 1200 or so BC. And if we're absolutely honest, I'm not going to ask you, but if we are absolutely honest, I suspect that is not one of the readings in church that has gripped your heart. Uh, It reads, doesn't it, a bit like an ancient geography lesson, all these names, hard to pronounce, we've no idea where they are, and if we're just really honest, we wonder what on earth has got to do with our lives in the 21st century. Uh, geography was by far my least favorite subject at school. I couldn't wait to give it up. Uh, and, and it always felt, I, I'm, apologies to the geographers in the room, but it always felt like just a pointless subject. I just couldn't care less about the contents uh, of our geography lessons. But the Bible doesn't do boring geography, random geography. There is a reason. There is a reason for Judges 1, just as much as there'll be a reason for the more exciting stories uh, in Judges or the more obviously exciting, at least. Children, if you don't know much about this, the book of Judges, you'll find out over the coming few weeks that there are all sorts of kind of action and adventure stories. Judges is the book of Gideon and his fleece. Gideon, who goes and conquers with just 300 men. It's the book of Samson and Delilah. Samson, the strong man, uh, who can pull up the gates of a city with his bare arms. Judges 1 is every bit as God-breathed, spirit-written, 
as Samson or Gideon or indeed the book of Moses or the Gospels of our Lord Jesus. All scripture, of course, is God-breathed, literally God-spirited, we read in 2 Timothy. And that's why I began our reading by saying, let's hear the words of the Holy Spirit. If you want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit is speaking as much in Judges 1 as Matthew 1. So with no further ado, let's dive in. Three things I want us to look at this morning, um, where it's hot and slightly echoey, but three things. Uh, First of all, we'll see the command, the command to God's people, which is to conquer. That's the command, conquer. Uh, The scene is set in verse one, after the death of Joshua. Uh, Children, do you remember who Joshua was? Joshua was the man who took over from Moses. Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, They'd journeyed through the desert for 40 years. Moses himself wasn't allowed to lead God's people into the promised land, this wonderful land of milk and honey. And so Joshua was appointed to take them in. And if we'd read the book of Joshua, uh, we would read all about how Joshua leads the Israelites to conquer the land that God has given them. But the the conquest, it's... It's almost like the, the beginning of the... Did anyone read Asterix books as a kid? We, we watched one of the Asterix movies the other day. There we go, Asterix books. If you ever read the stories about Asterix, he was about this... Um, he was this French uh, uh, tribesman back in the days of the Roman Empire. And every, every Asterix book began the same. Um, Caesar had conquered all of Gaul. France, all of Gaul. And it went on all... Well, nearly all. There was one small village that held out. And that was the village of Asterix and his friends. It seems that even though the conquest looked like being over by the end of Joshua, that Israel had got into the promised land, there were many villages, not one, that were holding out. The conquest wasn't complete. And so the the first call on God's people is to drive out the rest of the residents who lived in this promised land. Again, verse 1, the people ask... Who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, it goes against some of our modern sensibilities, perhaps. But at this particular point in history, God had said to his people, the Israelites, when I take you out of Egypt and into this promised land of Canaan, you are to utterly drive out all the peoples who live there. This wasn't a kind of friendly moving in. Have you got a spare house? Can I live in your empty room? This was a total conquest of the land. Uh, If you've got a Bible, just have a look at the book of Deuteronomy. A couple of books earlier. Deuteronomy 7. This will help us understand what's going on in the book of Judges. Deuteronomy 7 and, and verse 1. This is looking forward to the day when God brings the people into the land. So verse one, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, and then you get the the nations, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Strong words, aren't they? Devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Do you expect those words in the Bible? Show no mercy. 
Surprising words, aren't they? Whether you're a Christian or not, perhaps you're new to, to Christian things. And one of the things you pretty sure you've got a hold of was that, that Christians are meant to be merciful people, kind, gentle. And here we have in the Bible, the words on the, from the mouth of God himself, show no mercy. What's going on? God goes on, verse three, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You'll break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, those are false gods, and burn their carved images with fire. Strong words, aren't they? Strong words. What are we to do with them? Uh, What's going on in this conquest? And what on earth has it to do with us today? Two things essentially are going on. First is, this is judgment falling on the Canaanite peoples. Uh, God is a holy God. Uh, Throughout the Bible, it's made abundantly clear that he is not a God who enjoys wickedness. Indeed, he's not a God who tolerates evil and wickedness. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were told, the day you disobey me, the day you eat of the fruit, in their case, you will surely die. And we, we live in it, we, we, we sort of breathed in the air, don't we? If you've grown up, at least in the West, in the last 40, 50, 60 years, we breathed in the air of total tolerance. Anything goes. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, it's all fine. Live and let live. You have your truth, I have mine. But there is a God to whom we're all accountable. A God for whom we're meant to be living. And that God has said he will ultimately judge sin. He was amazingly patient. He was amazingly patient with these nations. Uh, He spoke about them to Abraham many hundreds of years earlier, 400 years or so earlier. Uh, He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you that land, but not for 400 years, because the sin of the Canaanites, the Amorites, hasn't yet built up. But eventually, the wickedness in that land got too much. We could read some of the accounts if we had time. We won't flick there this morning. But their wickedness extended not just to worshipping other gods, but even to child sacrifice. And so God says judgment is going to fall. Ultimately, God has got the right to judge the world. It is to him we're held accountable. And for his own reasons, he decided at this particular moment in time, okay, the, the time of the, uh, the conquest, that for that particular group of people, judgment, as it were, was now going to come. It's as if judgment day came early. But judgment is promised by the Lord Jesus himself, for all the world one day. We're told time and time again in Jesus' own preaching that one day we'll all stand before the judgment throne of God. And he warns, as much as he entices us with heaven, he warns of hell. He describes it as a place where the fire never goes out, the worm never dies. He talks about it as being an eternal fire. The judgment of which Jesus speaks and the judgment of Judges 1 ultimately are the same thing. 
It's not nasty Old Testament and friendly, soft New Testament. God decided at this moment in time to come early to judge those nations, as he has every right to do. As a journalist called uh, Peter Hitchens, who in his younger years was committed to all sorts of different ideologies. I think he was a communist for a while. and uh, He was certainly no friend uh, of Christianity. And then he tells of going to an art gallery. Uh, and in this art gallery, he looked at a, a painting. Uh, it's by an artist. I, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name. Okay, I, I try my best with Judges Warren, but I, I can't do Dutch uh, painters of the 18th century. Um, but it, it's a painting called Judgment Day. And Hitchin says he, he, he was standing there as a total atheist looking at this painting. And it was a painting of the return of Christ. And everybody in the painting was, was naked. And some of them were being led away to eternal punishment, banished to hell. One of them, he says, was vomiting with fear. And Hitchin says because they were naked, they were almost timeless. You know, they weren't sort of stuck in uh, the 17th century. They were every man and every woman. And he said the hair was the style uh, that he had at the time as well. And so suddenly, he said, I had a sudden strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of time. Hitchin suddenly realized that he was going to have to stand before the throne of God in the last day. And he knew it wouldn't go well for him. That was the moment that he woke up and eventually turned to Christ. What we're seeing in Judges 1 with this conquest, albeit carried out uh, by the hands of, of God's people, is Judgment Day come early. And it's a, a warning to us, a reminder to us that one day God will judge the earth. But let me add a couple of things. A couple of things in order that we don't misunderstand and misapply Judges 1. When we zoom forward to our own day, to the people of God in our own day, in no sense are we to copy what the Judaites and Benjaminites and Danites, the Israelites, did back then in the days of Judges. They were told directly by God to be instruments of his justice. But the church of God doesn't go forward with the sword When you come to the New Testament, you see three enemies, three prime enemies, three ways we fight. And so as we go through this book of Judges and come across stories, many of which will have some sort of fighting in, we we want to think in three ways. And none of them are about kind of taking up our swords and charging the streets of Leeds. Firstly, there is external enemies, enemies out there. In the New Testament, the prime enemy is the devil. There are spiritual forces we fight against. Uh, we are in a war. Children, when you get up and uh, get dressed in the morning, I want you to imagine that you're putting on a uniform, an army uniform. Okay, some of you might have kind of dress-up army uniforms, maybe a knight, a kind of breastplate, a sword, and a shield. Maybe you've got sort of modern you know, camouflage, that sort of thing. But that is the right clothes for any Christian. We are in a war, but not a war against other people, a war against the devil who's trying to pull us away from trusting Jesus and walking in his pathways. And as we fight the devil, that also brings us to a second enemy, a second external enemy out there, which is all those people who at the moment haven't bowed the knee to Jesus. 
The second way we fight it is by preaching the gospel of Jesus. The way the church conquered the world wasn't through sword and bombs and tanks, but a small group of men and women, a tiny group of men and women, if you think about it, back at the beginning in Jerusalem, who were willing to speak the good news of the gospel. This news that God himself so loved the world that he put under judgment that he himself came down and took the judgment on the cross in the person of his son, Jesus. Uh, This God who is both burningly pure but also overflowing with love provided a way to escape judgment by dying, coming under that judgment on the cross. And as he entrusted that message to the church in the first centuries and the church went out and preached, they never, never did so with violence. They did so willing to die rather than compromise on those beliefs, to lay down their lives, to show to the world, this is true, this is your only hope. So as Christians were thrown to the lions, Christians were imprisoned, Christians were burned on Nero's bonfires, they did so peacefully, proclaiming that this is the only hope of the world. And in doing so, they were fighting. It's a kind of pacifist form of fighting, if you like. Also to us. Our our role as a church, which at times is described in the New Testament as as an army, soldiers, is to go out there with the good news of grace and mercy from the Lord Jesus. And whatever suffering it brings us, whatever hardship, proclaim that message to the world around. Two external battles then, the devil and the battle to win the nations. And one internal One internal, one other enemy, which is the enemy within, the enemy that dwells in yours and my heart, the enemy of sin that remains. Paul tells us to put to death, hear the army language, children, the fighting language, put to death whatever remains of the sinful nature. When you become a Christian, gloriously, you are forgiven. You are totally safe. You're adopted as a child of God. But you are not instantly cured from all your sin. Children, it's not like God kind of sucks out all the impulses in you, all the bits of you that want to disobey him and ignore him, all the sort of urges in you to live for yourself. Sin remains within us, even as he pours the Holy Spirit into us. It's part of the amazing grace of the Holy Spirit is that he's willing to live in a really dusty, dirty house, the house of your heart. But that means that now we've become children of God now the spirit dwells within us we're to kill off the sin that remains the urge to disobey God in other words the command is still there conquer conquer the earth for Christ with the gospel conquer the sin that remains within your heart and stand first fast against the devil he'll try and pull you off both those conquests the command is there conquer two more things before we close today. If there's a command in Judges 1, there's also a challenge. And the challenge, the challenge is the challenge of compromising. The challenge of compromising. Uh, We're not going to get pulled into every little city and tribal battle and, and, and examine every kind of village that gets conquered. You'll probably be relieved to hear. But big picture, there's a pattern to Judges 1. In the first 20 verses, we follow the story of Judah. Judah is the royal tribe, the tribe from which Judah Uh, sorry, from which Jesus is going to be descended. And more or less, the Judaites do well. Uh, You might have seen the the, the pattern. Uh, They go up, uh, verse uh, four, 
and they defeat the Canaanites, the Perizzites. The Lord gives these tribes into their hands. A bit later in verse 8, they capture Jerusalem and strike it with the sword. At verse 10, they go against the Canaanites in Hebron and defeat, again, all these strangely named kings. Judah, in the first 20 verses, is more or less successful. But by the end of the chapter, the, the picture has changed. You, you see it in two ways. Uh, first is with the, the two of the little stories that, that interrupt uh, the geography lists. Uh, in verses 5 through 7, we meet this guy, Adonai Bezek. Now, Adonai just means Lord. He's the Lord of Bezek. Bezek's a place. He, he's the, the Lord of, or King of Bezek. And he styles himself as a bit of a king of the world. In verse 7, he says, 70 kings with their thumbs and toes have I cut off. 70 is the, the number in the Bible that symbolizes the whole world. It begins back in Genesis, there are 70 nations. So symbolically, at least, it symbolizes the whole world. Adonai Bezek, the king of Bezek, says, I am the conqueror of the world. I've defeated everybody. And now I've lost. The Judahites defeat him. Now, I'm not quite sure whether what they do in verse 6... Uh, to him uh, is is, uh, justice or not so they cut off his thumbs and his toes the reason they do that is so he can't fight anymore okay it's pretty hard to hold a sword or run into battle if you haven't got any um, thumbs or or big toes Uh, some people read this passage some commentators read it and say well that's justice what is happening is to him is what he did to others others read it and say "Mm, the judaites are already behaving a little bit like uh, the canaanites handing out the same punishments Or whichever way you go on that, clearly Adonai Bezek is defeated at least and ends up dead. But when the other tribes attack, well, they take a different approach. Verse 23. By this time, we're in the house of Joseph and they go to Bethel. Bethel's a a place rich with significance in the Old Testament. It's the place where Jacob first met God. It is literally the house of God, it means. And they see this guy coming out of the city and they say to him, well, show us a way in and we'll we'll let your family off when we conquer. And he does. And they let him be. And you might think, well, okay, all's well and good. But but there's a clue that the the tribe of Joseph haven't done well here. In verse 24, they say, we'll deal kindly with you. Literally what they say there is, we'll make a covenant with you. We'll make this promise with you, this lasting agreement with you. But they don't ask that he turns to the Lord God. They just say, we'll we'll let you go. Show us a way in and we'll let you go. Making a covenant with the natives is exactly what was explicitly outlawed by God in Deuteronomy 7. You will not make a covenant with them. So they are explicitly disobeying God's command. And indeed, this guy, he's not like um, when they captured Jericho and Rahab, the, the prostitute, turns to God, lets them in, but she turns and becomes part of the, the Israelites. He's not like that. He just heads off and builds a city, renames it Luz, and just reestablishes Canaanite religion further north. So these are two little stories. One, Judah conquers, but later on, the other tribes, they compromise. Uh, they let the Canaanites flourish. And in fact, all the way through the the chapter, there is a slow, slow diminishing of the success of the conquest. Just just try and follow this through. So have a look at verse uh, 21. Remember that it started with the Judaites driving out the Canaanites. But by verse 21, the Benjaminites, 
Uh, the people of Benjamin didn't drive out the Jebusites. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin. So they kind of lived side by side. Uh, by verse 29, a bit further down, we're on to the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites didn't drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them, not just with them, but now among, they're kind of intermingled. A bit further down uh, again, verse 32, this time with the tribe of Asher. And look who's living among who now. By now, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. And so too with Naphtali. And by the end, verse 34, it's no longer the Danites, who are the Israelites, who are doing all the action. It's the Canaanites, this time the Amorites. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they didn't allow them to come to that plain. Uh, and the border of the Amites, verse 36, ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela and upward. See, there's a power shift. It started off with God's people conquering and driving out the Canaanites. Then it moves to God's people living next door to the Canaanites. Then it moves to the, God's people allowing the Canaanites to live among them. And then it, it's God's people living among the Canaanites. And by the end, the Canaanites are driving out God's people. A slow disintegration. And that is going to be the pattern of the whole book of Judges. As we go through the stories of the Judges, you'll see that the Judges follow the order of the tribes in chapter 1. So we start with a successful judge. We'll see him next week called Othniel. He's a Judeite and he conquers. By the end of the book, and Samson, who's a Danite, the last of the tribes, he basically ends in failure. Uh, There is a compromise. And they allow idolatry to flourish within the people of God. You see it in verse 33. Again, these place names don't mean much to us, but they have significance. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Bet, that Bet bit just means house. Beth Shemesh is the house of the sun god. Bet Anath is the house of Anath, who's a fertility god. These shrines continue to live among God's people. And so that is the, the challenge for us, isn't it? To begin to see how Judges 1 is speaking to us today. As the people of God, the church, Judges 1 asks us, or the Holy Spirit asks us through Judges 1, where are we allowing the world a shrine? What gods are we allowing into the church to hold power? Where are we tolerating sin, in other words, sin and idolatry? The whole book of, of Judges is about, in the words of one commentator, the canonization of the church, canonization of the church. In other words, the non-Christianing of the Christians. That's what the whole book is going to be about. Start with tolerating and end up under the sway of sin. God demands exclusive loyalty. Children, as we begin this term, it's the Christmas term, isn't it? We're headed towards Christmas. The first time I've mentioned Christmas this year. We're heading towards Christmas. When you decorate the Christmas tree, okay, you put all sorts of decorations on, don't you? You put, you put the sort of uh, the baubles on and, I don't know, a snowman, whatever it may be. But at the top of the tree, there's only one thing that sits at the top of the tree, isn't there? Maybe it's a fairy in your house or a star, I don't know. But only one thing can go at the top of the tree. And everything else is below it. Well, your life is meant to be shaped like a Christmas tree. You're meant to have only one thing as your top priority, one thing right at the top of your life. And that's meant to be the Lord Jesus. There may be all sorts of other things you do in your life. You 
care for your family, you look after your friends, all sorts of good things, but they're all below the Lord Jesus who sits at the top. The danger is he slips down the tree and becomes one among a number of things we live for. Let me ask all of us, if we're absolutely honest, what is it that drives our lives? What is it we're living for? Do we wake up every morning thinking, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. How may I serve you today? Is that the first impulse as we open our eyes? Or, or actually, is he there? He's on the tree. But he's level with a whole load of other things. Are we like the Israelites who think, well, I could do with a bit of blessing from the sun God as well, or the fertility God? Are we saying, look, God is not enough. I need more than him to be blessed. If I'm really going to be happy, I need more than, more than just Jesus. And so I'm willing to compromise and disobey him because that's the route to true blessing, true happiness. Are we saying with the Israelites, look, I'm not going to be safe unless I also have God plus something in my life. And I'm willing to disobey him in order to be truly safe. Parents, one of the real concerns in Deuteronomy with God's warnings for driving out the Israelites is for the children. It's for the children. Your sons and your daughters will have their hearts turned away from me is the warning. So a real, a real question for, for parents, as you think about your family life, how you raise your children, how you spend your time, your money, is, is what gods are driving that? Are you in wholehearted allegiance to the Lord Jesus? Or are there areas where, frankly, you're just doing it the way the world does it? Because it's easier or leads to greater blessing, as you see. Because we don't, none of us like being seen as radicals or different. None of us really like being distinct from the world around us, do we? We like to blend in. It is awkward to be difficult. And increasingly in our society, it is awkward and uncomfortable to be a Christian. It may not have been 50 years ago or so, I don't know. But it is awkward now. The warning of Judges 1, don't let Canaan into the church. But it does end with comfort. It does end with comfort. This strange incident in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, comes from Gilgal, which is the place. He doesn't live in Gilgal. It's not like he was sort of... Yeah, that's where his house is or something like that. Gilgal is the place where Israel uh, was circumcised, having crossed the, uh, the river. It's the place where God says, I rolled back their sin. So it's as if God is saying, look, remember, I rescued you. That's his words, in fact, in verse 1, isn't it? I brought you out of the land of Egypt to the land I swore to give your fathers, and I will never break my covenant. I am with you, God says. I am for you. I'm trying to give you this land. Yes, God is immensely holy. But he is also determined to bless his people. And that is going to be the hope throughout the book of Judges. I will give you this land. Although the question remains in our minds, they don't seem to deserve it. And they don't seem capable of taking it. And ultimately, of course, that is true. We are not capable on our own of conquering the world. But the Lord Jesus has done that in his death and resurrection. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're not capable on our own of driving sin out of our hearts and idolatry out of the church, but the Lord Jesus is. It is in reliance on him that the victory is won. It's interesting that it's Judah, the, the royal tribe, that is the successful one. A hint, perhaps, that it's going to be Jesus, ultimately, who conquers Satan, 
triumphs over the world, all nations are given to him, and defeats sin. I wonder even if there's a picture in that little story we skipped over, the story of Ophniel and Caleb. Uh, It's there in verses uh, 11 through 15. I don't know what you make of this. But you have a father and a son. Othniel is described as the son of Canaz. And the son goes and conquers. And as a reward, he's given a bride. The father gives him a bride. I wonder if there's just a little picture there of the gospel. Uh, The father, the son who comes and conquers the father's enemies and wins a bride. The bride in the Bible is a picture of the church. And what happens next? The bride goes to the father. Verse 15, asks for a blessing, and in particular asks for springs, for water to live in this desert land. Again, there is gospel pattern there, isn't there? Father, son winning, winning a bride, and then the bride asks for for life-giving water. In the New Testament, Jesus many times refers to the Holy Spirit as life-giving water. What happens in the story of the gospel, the father sends the son, the son conquers sin, death, and the devil, rises again, is given the bride, the church. And what happens after the resurrection? The the apostles ask for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is poured from heaven. Or whatever you make of that. Certainly it is true. Certainly it is true. The victory comes from the Lord and reliance on him. In other words, holiness and defeat of sin in your life is not something you have to go and do on your own in order to add to God's blessing of forgiveness and get you safely home to heaven. Rather, rather, it's as you see the unconditional grace and love of God for you, the fact that he has washed away all your sin, that you are totally safe, you see the goodness of God, that your heart is moved to live wholeheartedly for him. Faith is the root, not just of salvation, forgiveness, but also of growth in holiness. If you know you're compromised, if you know you've let Canaan into the house, into the heart, the way to start is to look back to Christ crucified. Look back to the immeasurable goodness of God. See his love for you. And as your heart is warmed and you see you are totally safe, giving yourself to him 100%, then that will give you the strength to cut out the other things you think you need. Especially if they're pulling you away from the Lord Jesus. Judges is a book of much fighting, much conquering, but it's a book of much comfort. It reassures us the grace of God is sufficient for you, whatever the battles in your life, because ultimately the strength is from him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, confess that we are far more Canaanite than we would like. In fact, even that is too strong a statement. Uh, We confess that we don't dislike being like the world enough. And we pray in your mercy that you remind us of the great lengths you've gone to in order to rescue us and redeem us. And we ask that you'd move our hearts to want to declare war on all the sin that remains. We pray we wouldn't compromise with idols. We pray we would not think we need anything to add to you and your goodness. And we praise you that ultimately it is the Lord Jesus who has conquered sin, death and the devil and won for us freely a life in the true promised land. Strengthen us and grow our faith, we ask. In his name, amen.